Hello there. I am Andrew Puzak of Vigilant Geek Media. And I am Holden Arm of Vigilant Geek Media. And this is another episode of the Vigilant Geek Podcast. As we approach episode two, today we will be discussing all things DC Comics. That includes the DC Comics universe and what's going on with the books right now. Uh, as well as some of our top picks uh, for what to pick up at your local retailers. And we will be delving into the DC uh, cinematic universe and TV universes as well. Yeah, dude, guy, bro, kid! Andrew, I am very excited about today's podcast because I am a DC man through and through. And I'm going to be chewing everyone's ear off today. <laughs> That's all right. I don't think anyone will have too much of a problem with that. Uh, now, you were, uh, you know, the first guy to really get me into DC uh, a few years back. I, I've always been a big Bat fan, but, uh, you know, DC's just got so much, so many great stories to offer. And uh, I have to thank you, uh, my friend and colleague, for uh, introducing me to all that uh, a few years back. But anyways, uh, without further ado. All right. Um, so when I originally got into the DCU, I had substituted my heavy drinking in the Army with comic books. And during that time is when the D- DC line came out with the new 52 and the new 52 was a major reboot of every DC title that they had and what it consisted of was these 52 new books and then kind of retelling old stories in a new way with the DC Universe. Um, so what they did was they rebooted all the major names like Batman, Superman, Wonder Woman, Green Lantern, Flash, Aquaman. Everybody got a reboot. And because of that, I... Uh, I'm going a little bit of a blank here. Let me check my notes. Let's see. And uh, because of this, they uh, they made it easier... For everyone who was scared of picking up a book at, like, number 600, be like, oh, well, I'm going to start this. I'm going to be lost. I'm not going to know anything that's going on. And what they were trying to do is making the books more palatable to new readers. So the New 52 kind of hinged on uh, a story arc that Jeff Johns had done before called Flashpoint, where Flash went back in time and changed one of the major events in his storyline and then came back and then everything had changed. Just he stopped one thing and it had this butterfly effect and everything changed. So by the time he set things right again, things were kind of changed again and that was the rationale for the beginning of the New 52. Um, So other events that are kind of going on in DC right now, they just finished a story arc called Convergence. It was a big crossover event that involved a lot of characters in the Earth 2 books, but also tied in a lot of characters from drop storylines from the pre-New 52. So, what they did was they uh, they tied in all these, these old characters, and they even tied it in with the first major crossover event that they ever had, well, that I'm really aware of. That happened back in 1985 called Crisis on Infinite Earths. 
Crisis on Infinite Earths had this grand idea. What if we took all the Gold Age and Silver Age books and somehow tie them into a story throughout the overall universe? And what they did was they told this story, then the, the current Superman and the Superman from then Earth 2, and they all had to band together all these heroes across these different realities in order to take on this omnipotent enemy called the Anti-Monitor. The Anti-Monitor was pretty much trying to destroy everything in the positive matter universe and create everything that was antimatter because his source of power was based on things that were antimatter. The more things that were antimatter existed, the more powerful he became. And his whole plan was to just destroy all the other universes, every other, from Earth 1, Earth 2, Earth 3 through 5. And I think he destroyed most of them. And I think that was all that was left was 1, 3, and 5... I don't know. I, I can't be too specific here because I'm I'm not completely sure. But the uh, the results of that storyline bleed into the convergence storyline. What happened was um, the convergence starts off that somehow uh, the Brainiac from the New Fifty Two was defeated by Superman, and he was exiled into this in between space between the multiverse and. While he was there, he could look into all these other realities. Um, the way it turns out, Brainiac's much stronger than anyone gave him really any credit for. And his whole shtick before is that Brainiac is a Superman villain. And his whole deal is he goes to worlds that are doomed. He takes one of the biggest cities with all the occupants. He shrinks them down and sticks them in a bottle and holds on to them until, I guess he says he's going to repopulate their worlds someday, but never does. So... When Convergence, what they're saying was Brainiac was actually saving worlds from realities, whole multi different multiverses that that um, were were becoming doomed, like from the Crisis area, like uh, from all different storylines, whether it was Flashpoint or Earth Two or other variant worlds, other other storylines. And this gave DC the opportunity to give some closure with some of these books that were dropped during the beginning of the New 52. Uh, and uh, not to interrupt, but... Uh, no, I was about finished. They, um, in doing this, uh, the cool thing that DC was able to do is uh, not only cater to its newer uh, fan base of, of uh, people that are really into the New 52, which is sort of... Exactly where I jumped on was the beginning of the New 52. Uh, but also, uh, DC was able to cater to some of their older fan bases from the Gold and Silver Ages. They went through with that. They did the Convergence tie-in. Um, at the end of the book, it somehow says that uh, the future's been reset. No one knows what the future is, which is convenient, because they just had a weekly book before called Future's End which involved a lot of uh, real fringy characters who don't seem to have their own books. And now, instead of everyone knowing the future, everything is kind of up in the air. So, I guess we should get to uh, what DC has to offer. Starting with Justice League. Um, right now, the Justice League run has been done from the New 52 
has been really exciting, real quality stuff with uh, Jeff Johns. Um, he's worked with several artists. In the beginning, he did an origins arc with uh, Jim Lee, which is really good. Uh, pretty much explained a, uh, a dark side invasion and then how uh, the Justice League came together. And uh, currently, they're doing a arc called Dark Side War, where the Anti-Monitor is prepping to invade Apocalypse, where Darkseid lives, and kill him. And this ties into Crisis with Infinite Earths and Convergence. Pretty big, because Darkseid wasn't a major character in that. So, we got things uh, starting out with that. It's pretty good. Yeah, no, uh, I've read the first issue of that arc. It looks real promising. Uh, also, uh, they started a new JLA book that uh, I'm really psyched about. Brian Hitch is writing it, and uh, they got an interesting storyline going on there where uh, uh, this god of Krypton uh, has made its way to Earth, um, and that god had abandoned Krypton uh, during its time of uh, destruction, and uh, he has come to Earth to find Superman, and to apologize to him for his absence and to make up for it. So he is essentially uh, welcoming uh, uh, the human race uh, on his giant spacecraft, which uh, is referred to as the cathedral. And everybody thinks that uh, this Kryptonian god is there to uh, be their savior, and Superman is giving him everyone... Uh, his blessing, but then you get people like Batman who are always going to be skeptical of uh, powers that great showing up uh, on Earth, and it's just interesting to see, you know, is is this Kryptonian god uh, really who he says he is, and is he really going to do what he says he's going to do, or you know, is are things going to backfire due to a uh, ulterior motive, which I'm sort of waiting for uh, oh, with yeah. bated breath. No, the the way they're doing that story is really good. That. They're building it up slow, but they're they're laying down a lot of groundwork for the plot. Like um, usually in the DCU, whenever an foreign alien shows up and they say they're going to be something, usually they tend to kind of turn on you kind of quick. Usually Batman like catches them with their pants down or something, and they're like, "Well, we we were going to be all nice, but now we're going to be mean," and then. Um, but that in this uh, storyline, that's just not the case. They're building it up slow. Uh, Superman is really into and really be- is always willing to give a peaceful solution to a problem at every time. So even though this Kryptonian god Rao appears in the sky out of out of nowhere just randomly, Superman's still willing to give him a chance. And uh, meanwhile, things are getting a. Uh, kind of weird. They're laying some groundwork. I guess at the end of the last issue, uh, Wonder Woman, who is now the Olympic god of war, I believe. I'm, I'm not real familiar with uh, the Wonder Woman book since I I don't follow it. Everything I know about the characters from the Justice League titles. Yeah, no, same here. Uh, that's one title book that I just haven't been able to get my hands on yet. But uh, yeah, it seems like they keep changing up her origin story, you know, uh, she's Olympian, she's, uh, also Amazonian, so, you know, it's sort of like one of those characters where, sort of like Green Arrow, where there's, the origins, you know, there's a couple different ones, and, and 
you know, I guess it depends on the writer as to what direction they're taking her, depending on which arc they're going going on, which can be frustrating, but uh, that's just how it is sometimes with these characters. So, yeah. So I guess at the end, uh, in the last book, she's uh, she's up on Olympus and just kind of wondering where the other gods are, and then uh, Rao's got his. Uh, Got his disciples down in Atlantis trying to convert the Atlanteans, who are big skeptics about everything. They're kind of xenophobes. They don't like outsiders. So Never uh, have. No, no. They're, they're polluting our oceans. <laughs> so it, that, that title really looks like it's shaping up to be something nice. I mean, it's, Justice League has been one of the most solid titles... Period. And for good reason. It should be. It has all the marquee DC characters involved. Yeah, it's the DC flagship, uh, hands down. So, uh, usually always an exciting read. Uh, the Amazovirus story, uh, story arc that, uh, had concluded a few months back, uh, left a little to be desired, but, uh, and then of course you got Lex Luthor in the mix too, which creates mixed feelings. Uh, I personally don't feel as it, the Justice League would ever trust him, especially after all the shit he's pulled, uh, to be an actual member. Um, but he brings some interesting things to the table, too, and some interesting dialogue between him and uh, and Superman, him and Batman, uh, and what have you. Yeah, he's so. got a good dynamic in the fact that, that none of them really trust him, but he kind of did a major face turn in the uh, Forever Evil crossover when he pretty much, between him and Batman, single-handedly recruited some of the bigger villains in the DCU to fight the uh, crime syndicate, which is the the evil versions of Superman and Batman and Wonder Woman, all from Earth 3. So they they were all, they all faced off and then uh, this big fight and he was there and... Lex Luthor's there, and he ends up saving Superman's life and, a, like, a bunch of other people on Earth. So he does this face turn, which is just strange, because he's one of the bigger villains in the DCU. But now it gives us an opportunity to kind of see him all the time. And uh, I always get kind of a kick out of him, just because he's so smart and arrogant that, like, he has the possibility to be right about a lot of things... But it gets irritating when he has to deal with people who have other powers because he feels his intellect alone among normal human beings should prove that he's the real Superman. Exactly. And uh, I'm just waiting here. You know, I'm waiting for his ulterior motive to become, uh, you know, prominent because I know there is one. I know that he's up to something. I think most readers can can feel a sense as to, you know, he, he, he's he's up to something else. He's got he's got something up his sleeve, and it just hasn't been revealed yet. But when it does get revealed, it's going to be a whopper of a story arc, that's for sure. Yeah. Well, with the story arc that they have going right now, it is probably the best story arc that they've had since I started reading the book from number one. Number one was excellent with uh, Dark Side and Apocalypse invading, but since then, it's kind of been used a little bit as a vehicle for some some side stories. They had a couple good ones in there. Um, Throne of Atlantis was really good. It was the uh, crossover with uh, Aquaman. Also, and, that was a great animated feature that came out last summer too. Come out last summer. It was. I think it did. Uh, like the beginning of this year. Beginning of this year. Either way, uh, I picked that one up. Uh, 
I mean, the the animated features, and, and we can get into this later, but uh, especially with the Justice League, uh, Justice League War, Throne of Atlantis, uh, they've been doing just a an amazing job with those, and and uh, you know the content in uh, some of those animated features. It, it's it's you know you think you think cartoons, you think they're for kids, but some of this content and dialogue that they have in those are, are, are definitely not. Uh, you know anything that 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 kids should really be uh, exposed to, in my opinion. So so it, it's sort of you know they've taken a more mature approach to their animated features lately, uh, which I think is a really neat thing because it's more believable. No, they really you know? have. I mean, uh, the, with the, um, the advent of a lot of anime coming out of Japan, they're showing everyone that animation is actually a really good base and medium to tell. Any kind of story, whether it's for kids or adults, and I mean, you you just get the good voice actors. And sometimes the animation is just gorgeous, and there's a lot of things you can do with animation that you can't do with live action. I mean, for a long time, the only things we could count on, as far as the comic medium is concerned, uh, as far as watching anything, was uh, animation because they didn't have the CGI and the special effects in order to pull that off. And thus, you know, they weren't held back. They could they could show pretty much anything that they needed to show in a comic book, except you know, uh, it's a little bit more exciting. I want to say to to watch as opposed to reading panels. Sometimes, you know, I love looking at artwork. Uh, you know, but for some people, just being able to see things played out on screen, well. Before exactly as you were saying, before you know, CGI became a real prominent uh, way of uh, movie making. Uh, you know, these animated features. We're lucky we had them. We're lucky we still have them. So, um, keeping things back on task, though, um, let's keep talking about some of these books. I'd like to draw our attention now to Superman, if we could. Oh. Uh, now, uh, before we get into this, uh, it's just important to mention that. Uh, since Convergence ended, uh, which sort of con- Convergence was also a way for DC to kind of wipe their new 52 slate clean, uh, they've sort of they haven't rebooted everything because they're still continuing with some of the basic continuities that they have had prior in the new 52. But they have rebooted. Uh, a lot, a lot of their stories. They've started a lot of new titles, and they've also uh, revamped a, a lot of uh, uh, characters' costumes and things like that. Like uh, you look at Superman, and you know he's not wearing that Kryptonian armor at this point in time. He's going through some changes right now. He has a new superpower, uh, which I understand is is. Uh, now, correct me if I'm wrong, but it's some sort of a nuclear blast, or... Yeah, they're, what they're calling it is, uh, I mean, that's essentially what it is, is what he does is, when he's using his his eye, eye beams, he, he focuses real hard, but then he unleashes all the solar energy that's been stored within his cells, because Superman gets his power from the yellow sun, and... The results of that power are absolutely just catastrophic in, in scale. Just blows up everything with an enormous radius. But a side effect of this is that during the time that his cells become decharged, Superman 
he loses all his powers, and he and like he doesn't have his super hearing, his super strength. Can't fly. It numbs his sense of taste. Um, he can't fly. He can't see see through things. He doesn't have the X ray vision. So essentially, uh, when he when he uses this atomic blast, for lack of a better way of of you know naming it for now, uh, he's turned back into he's turned into a normal human being in a sense for a period of time until his powers regenerate. So we get a lot of glimpses of Superman living like a human. You know, he's able to finally like feel hunger for the first time and he's able to enjoy like a nice big lunch and taste it and these are things he couldn't experience uh with his kryptonian powers and you know fully powered up so we got superman who's kind of got the uh abercrombie look right now i kind of want to say where he's got you know the clean cut hair and he's got the like the five o'clock shadow with the superman t-shirt and the 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 the, the faded jeans faded jeans Yeah. yeah Um, but you know what? Uh, it's made for a really interesting story because he's been put in these situations where he's had to go up against these, uh, adversaries that, you know, on a normal day, Superman could take out with one hand tied behind his back. But now, uh, he doesn't have much to rely on except maybe a little bit of extra strength and, and willpower. And it makes a really interesting, uh, uh, angle for the story arcs to go. Now... In the title book, they've really delved into, uh, you know, the struggles he's had with that, which is great. And then they've expanded it even further in action comics, uh, where you have Metropolis sort of uh, pulled apart in two different directions. And you have uh, the people that sympathize with Superman. I mean, everyone knows he's Clark Kent now. No, Which, yeah. uh, you know, once again, we talked last week about, uh, where to take characters after they've outed their secret identities. It's not an easy thing to do. Nope. But, it's certainly not. Uh, Greg Pack's been doing a good job of that. Uh, essentially, the, the, the police force is corrupt and they want to take him out. Uh, and they've got a lot of power within the city, uh, you know, and with the mayor, uh, to do so. So, uh, the end of Action Comics, the latest issue, uh, I believe it was 42. Uh, you got all these people standing behind Superman, uh, in, Su- in Clark Kent's old neighborhood, which they've renamed Kentville. Um, and then you got, you know, the SWAT team there who's looking to, you know, basically just off everyone, all these protesters. And then Superman shows up after he defeats this ridiculous monster across the city. And uh, he's got these large chains, and he chains himself in front of all of his sympathizers and just says, you know, uh, I'm not going to fight you, but I'm not going to let you hurt these people either. And they beat the piss out of Superman. But it's just it's such a heroic moment because he's still standing there. He's barely able to hold himself up, and he's getting, he's getting the shit kicked out of him by these awful SWAT team uh, members. But he, he just he, he's not going to give in. Uh, He's going to stand his ground, and it's just so cool. Yeah, that they, really added a lot of depth of the character. Since Superman kind of got nerfed, like, his powers aren't what they were because of this new ability, um, it's really kind of shown, like, m- given more to his character. Like, he's been put in a lot of positions where he's completely depowered, but he's still doing the right thing. He's still being Superman. And it's showing a lot of his, to his character 
when you can't stop a train by just putting your arm up, uh, I mean, even then, like, becoming truly mortal and, like, facing down gunmen and having the guts to just kind of stand up and just to stand up for what you believe in, regardless of whether or not you have superpowers or not. And it really shows a lot about his character. Oh, it speaks volumes to Clark Kent and just his uh, his moral compass and his beliefs on what, you know, why he was brought to Earth uh, as a, a, a newborn. Uh, and it just really... Uh, it just... It, it's refreshing and... Because, you know, years and years of Superman, you know, just thwarting all these crimes with all this ease you know i gotta admit that even though i've been a fan for years now it can get a little uh a little dry and boring um so this is a nice change up right here this is a very refreshing way to take the story and i just can't wait for uh the next issue of action to come out i can't wait for the next title book to come out it's just great stuff and then uh, we look at another great title that Superman's a part of, the Batman and Superman book, and you look at uh, what they're doing there. They're kind of playing off that story as well. Where they're, they're just showing great changes across the board. Also, enormous changes with Batman as well. Which we'll get into in a second, but I just want to talk about that book real quick. Um, Bruce Wayne is sort of uh, assisting Superman in controlling this new power, so by the end of uh, the latest issue of Batman vs. Superman, uh, Bruce has taught Clark, uh, to, when he uses that atomic blast, um, he's able to control it at least a little so he doesn't quite lose everything afterwards. He's not quite so wiped afterwards. So little by little, him, you know, Batman and the rest of the Justice League are, are trying to coach him into dealing with this new power. So there is hope of Superman, uh, you know, Returning to his old ways, so that it's not like this is set in stone right now. But like I said, it does make for very exciting reading. So um, while talking about the Batman and Superman book, this is a great segue into Batman and the Gotham universe, which is a gigantic part of the DCU. And uh, boy, has there been some big changes with Batman lately. Absolutely enormous changes. Um, I mean, there's not too many... I don't have a single bad thing to say anything about Scott Snyder and Greg Capullo's Batman run. From the minute they started on that book, every arc has been so epic in proportions and so well done that it's just some of the best Batman arcs I've ever read are, are, are coming from these two. Oh, they're epic. And uh, Snyder, Capullo, uh, their creative team, i got to tell you, what they've essentially done, with the exception of, with the exception of Zero Year, but even Zero Year was a little bit of a horror tale. But what they've essentially done is they've made Batman a horror book. Uh, I mean, there's always going to be detective comics. There's all, Batman's always going to be a crime book too. But they've taken that title book and they've made some of the scariest story arcs. Uh, you know. Let's go back to the Court of Owls for a second. Let's talk about these talons, these uh, mystical warriors that the Court of Owls, this secret organization that uh, pulls the strings of Gotham from the shadows, uh, sort of in a similar way of like, you know, some of those secret societies out there uh, that conspiracy theorists look into all the time. Well, this is sort of a fictional version of that. And they have these, uh, these 
immortal, uh, well, they're not really immortal. They're almost like zombies where they're cryogenically frozen and then unfrozen when they're needed. These uh, expert assassins called Talons that uh, sort of do the dirty work for the Court of Owls. And they're uh, extremely hard to kill because they regenerate. Um, so you got sort of a little bit of a horror element in there. Uh, then, obviously, Death of the Family. I don't need to talk too much about that. That was about the scariest story arc I've ever read in mainstream comics. Uh, I mean, you got the Joker, who's never looked so gruesome. Uh, as we know, uh, the doll maker uh, cut his face off way back uh, before the new film. That was in uh, Detective Comics number one? That happened? Yeah, yeah. Uh, right at the start of the New 52. Um, so the Joker's back. He's kind of stapled his face on, like, all uh, haphazardly. And, uh, you know, he's breaking into the Gotham City Police Department and hacking away at whoever he can find. He, he's always tormenting Jim Gordon. He's tormenting the, the hell out of him. Uh, and then, you know, it just... It escalates from there. He kidnaps the members of the family and... Uh, I mean, I don't want to give everything away, but dastardly, evil, horrific things happen in that arc that are just, it was just mind-blowing. Uh, zero year, you get horror elements in that in regards to what they did with Dr. Death, which I was a huge fan of the fact that they brought him back. He was kind of one of those DC characters that had almost become forgotten about. And uh, it was really neat what they did with him and the Riddler. Uh... So, I mean, that brings us to Endgame. Endgame. Which uh, was also a freaky, horrific arc, and what they did with the Joker there was just brilliant. Yeah. Um, essentially, what they did was they played around with the idea, of like, well, what if the Joker wasn't just this random psycho that we always thought he was? What if the Joker was actually immortal and had been around and messing around in Gotham for years? And that's what the story takes on. And you, they really don't uh, explain what the truth was, but uh, apparently the Joker finds this rare chemical that... Dionysium. Yeah, Dionysium, that allows him to not only regenerate, but gave him extra long life. So after you think that the Joker is dead and gone after the death of the family arc, where he disappears into a river somewhere... He all of a sudden he just pops up out of nowhere, and not only does he pop up out of nowhere, but at the very beginning he he finds a way to just neutralize the entire Justice League and make them come after Batman. So Batman has to go through all these fail-safe like break glass in case of emergency plans mm. for everybody in from the Justice League, whether it was Wonder Woman, Aquaman, the Flash, Superman. You know, and I just love uh, the beginning of Endgame uh, Part 1. You know, everything is just status quo in uh, the makeshift bat headquarters they have there, uh, which was actually, uh, I believe, one of the old uh, safe houses for the Court of Owls uh, um, it's, in the uh, old Wayne that Tower. That is correct, yes. Yeah. So, uh, you know, he's talking to uh, Julia Pennyworth, Alfred's daughter, who's kind of taken control of being uh, the... Uh, IT girl for Batman uh, during operations, and you know everything's ho you know hunky dory, and then all of a sudden Wonder Woman just comes crashing through uh, the window and just takes him out, and this big battle ensues in, in the middle of the streets, and and uh, you know as he's 
battling his way through the different Justice League members, using those emergency fail-safes, which were uh, first sort of brought into prevalence during uh, the Justice League doom. Uh, I like to think that's sort of where Batman uh, uh, first shows... Um, his different fail-safes for all the Justice League members, his contingencies, if you will. Oh, yeah. Um, and, you know, he's kind of made out to look like a major douchebag uh, uh, in doing that, sort of like, hey, I thought we were friends, you know, but you got all these emergency protocols against all of us. So it's like, you know, his his theory behind that is, you know, Batman's prepared for everything, and, you know, if any of you, you know, he says to the Justice League, if any of you uh, think it's unreasonable to have these fail-safes against people of our power then I have no business being on this team. Well, in the end, they decide that he's right, and uh, Batman is, you know, he, he's still on the Justice League. But um, where I'm going with that is this has sort of been, this is the most diabolical plot the Joker has had yet. Um, during the Batman panel at Comic-Con last year, Greg Capullo strictly uh, put it as this is going to be the big game-changer uh, for the bat, the Batman story in the DCU. And he's so right about that because, you know, alright, we, we know that the Joker, uh, he got facial reconstructive surgery. We know that he infiltrated Arkham Asylum. I'm giving away some spoilers here, but this arc has already been out for months, so my apologies, but you should have read it by now. Yep. <laughs> Continue. So, you know, it was just, it was so smart what they did because he, he's, um, he poses as an employee, as like a, as a doctor at Arkham Asylum, this guy Eric Border. For over he, a year. Over a year he's at Arkham manipulating all, all the patients, you know, and, and making them think all these different things. The Joker's really Satan. The Joker's really a cyborg. The Joker's really, uh, you know, the Easter Bunny. Whatever, you know. But they get, he's got all these different uh, mental, you know, people with mental deficiencies thinking different things about him. And he's got them following him around. So there's that. And then Batman, looking for answers after the whole Justice League incident, goes to Arkham Asylum, uh, goes to the Joker's, and this is the real creepy, the, the creepiest freaking part. Well, maybe not the creepiest part of the arc, but one of the coolest parts. He goes to the Joker's old cell at Arkham, and, and Arkham, as we know, the old Arkham Asylum has pretty much been destroyed from yeah. uh, Batman Eternal. If Batman you read that. Eternal, if uh, you're not familiar, it was a weekly title put up by DC because of the uh, 75 years of Batman. And uh, it was this very long, grand title where Batman ends up being manipulated over the span of 52 issues and he keeps trying to find out who's been messing with the city's infrastructure trying to find out which villain's in charge and every time he finds one guy it seems he needs to go further and further down the rabbit hole to try to unravel this enormous mystery and uh, during that arc our uh, Arkham Asylum ends up all the I guess it just uh, there's the supernatural occurrence underground and it just caved in uh, the whole building and a whole bunch of inmates got loose. And because of that, Arkham Asylum is no longer where they hold them. And instead, they're holding all the prisoners in Bruce Wayne's old home because also, by the way, his, his company went bankrupt and, uh, he's, he's doing things pretty much on his own financially and 
Yeah, he doesn't have a lot in the ways of technological resources right not so now. Much. He's yeah. not the uh, the Batman who had a, a suit for everything. He's getting more of a relying more on his on his skills. Exactly. Uh, so there's that. So we're looking at an old decrepit, rundown Arkham Asylum that's no longer in service. So Batman's visiting that. He's visiting his roots of where you know him and the Joker first really started having their, uh, well, for lack of a better word, their relationship. And uh, Eric Border shows up uh, at the old Arkham Asylum where Batman is just sort of having, you know, a, a, some meditation time, if you will. And, you know, it it really, they do such a good job of, of you know, hiding the fact that Eric Border is the Joker until the last possible second that, you know, as a reader, I was completely shocked. I was so shocked that I had to go back to that uh, annual where they first introduced Eric Border and see the resemblances. You know, you can kind of see like oh, he's got kind of like the Joker's bone structure in his face and everything, but he looks he looks normal. So all of a sudden, you know, he's he's taunting Batman. Uh, you know, Batman's trying to tell him, uh, "Mr. Border, uh, just go home. Uh, the Joker's not crazy. He's just evil." And I'm gonna take care of it. So just go home and try to forget about it. Little does he know, he's talking to the Joker. So, uh, little by little, the Joker's taunting him. He's saying, you know, Bruce, I know everything about you, but you don't know a thing about me. And he starts taking the, the makeup off, and you see the white, you know, the white skin underneath the makeup, and it's just like, damn. He locks Batman in his old cell and uh, starts gassing him. Uh, and it's just the coolest scene. And, and you got this evil-looking Joker face right up against those bars just staring at him and... Just messing with them. I don't know. I loved it. Yeah. So, um, not to spend too much more time on Endgame, but long of the short of it, the Joker, uh, he uses a version of his Joker toxin to, and, and it's got the Dionysium, uh, laced into it, I believe, so that he's essentially turned the population of Gotham into a bunch of crazy... Ravenous, regenerating zombies. Joker zombies, yeah, and they all get that creepy smile, and and, and it, it's almost like a Joker zombie apocalypse scenario. It's just really cool, and it it, it things look so bleak for Batman uh, right up till the end. Now, big spoiler alert here because we got to if we're gonna keep talking about the continuity. Hey, but hey, you, you, everyone's had your chance. We're not giving the whole story, so if you want to. I highly recommend going back and reading these books if you can get your hands on them. Yeah, if you can read Endgame right now, I highly recommend it. But uh, earmuff it if you're still interested in reading it for yourself. Uh, with that being said, uh, there's, of course, that last epic Batman-Joker face-off that there is in pretty much ev- well in every single Batman-Joker arc um, where the two of them plummet... Uh, now, I believe they plummet down into the same spot in the sewer where Batman threw the Joker down uh, back in Death of the Family. So now they're both laying there on the ground, and it appears to the reader that the Joker's dead and Batman, Batman. is dying. And we're pretty much left off at the end of that arc as we think Batman's dead. So no. we think he's dead. But and the status quo in the DC universe now, because of that, is Batman is incognito. He has been incognito for several months. The city is losing its mind. The city needs a Batman. So the the, peop- the Powers Corporation, or the Powers family, 
who is another big family within the Gotham, uh, Gotham timeline, goes ahead and they're the ones who control Wayne Enterprises now, decide that the city needs a Batman. So what they go, to, they go ahead and do is they got to approach the m- most qualified guy for the job. Enter Jim Gordon, the new Batman. And I love this uh, because if you look at some of the source material, like the real, uh, the real prevalent source material, like especially Batman Year One, Jim Gordon was uh, basically Batman's very first sidekick. He really was. Uh, he came way before Robin. Uh, Jim Gordon is the first guy that Bruce Wayne feels he can trust besides himself and Alfred. Uh, when he starts out uh, as a vigilante. So to see this come full, full circle, uh, you look at just about, you look at every Robin that's ever been in existence, well, minus uh, Carrie Kelly and Stephanie Brown, I'd say, but every other Robin, they've shown story arcs where they've taken the mantle as Batman. Uh, you got Terry McGinnis or... From Batman Beyonds. Yeah, uh, he was the Batman from but Batman Beyond. This makes perfect sense because the original sidekick was Jim Gordon. So he should have a shot at the mantle, and he never has before. He never and has. The- he's always within the family. But the, when you really think about it, there's actually who is more qualified than Jim Gordon? Who's given more to that city outside of Batman? Well, I think... I think you're right about that on every account except for physically. You got to look at Jim Gordon's physical uh, status, and I mean, you're looking at you know an older gentleman. He's a chain smoker. They're trying to get him to quit smoking cigarettes. You know, he's in shape and he knows how to fight from the military and everything. But it's interesting because what Jim Gordon lacks in uh, you know his physically uh is it's it's all being uh, uh made up for if you will by this new suit that the powers corporation uh has uh constructed for him um the suit it reminds me a lot of robocop it's sort of like uh a new batman that's uh totally compliant with the police and does whatever they say and that's sort of how robocop was um in a way uh, I mean, the suit itself looks very ridiculous, but I think it's actually brilliant that they did it that way. Uh, pretty much because you don't want it to look too much like something Bruce Wayne created. You want this to be a whole different animal right now. Yeah, what they're really trying to depict in these new news new stories that have Batman in it now is that if you're going to be Batman, you're going to be Batman the way you're going to be Batman. Not everyone can be the Bruce Wayne Batman. So Jim Gordon has to find his own identity within the Batman suit. And, of course, the Powers Corporation paid for all this training for him. So he's gotten all buff, and he's already a natural detective. They're giving him all the toys that he needs in order to be successful. And they're letting him wear, like, 20-plus nicotine patches at once. (laughs) Yeah, it's pretty ridiculous. He draws little bats on him. Yeah, he draws little bats on his nicotine patches. (laughs) I I just love it. I love it. It's, It's, like, real. It's something that I can believe could happen in the, you know, the whole Gotham universe. And it's just cool. Now... We have found out, if you have been keeping up with the Bat books presently, that Bruce Wayne is alive. That's right. Bruce is, I guess he's just decided to kind of just sit one out. Uh, something must have happened. Probably got some dinosium splashed on him. We don't know. It's all up for up in the air. 
They're, they're, they've been very vague about what's going on with Bruce right now. There's there's only really been two scenes, couple panels worth of Bruce in the last couple of Bat books. And one is him just on a, a park bench and some guy walks by him and says, you know, hey, you Bruce Wayne, you know? Mm-hmm. And then there's another uh, scene in uh, Batman 42 where uh, he's with uh, Drake, the, the boy that he saved in Endgame. Uh, and they're at some shelter of some sort. I don't know if it's a homeless shelter or what, but that's where they're staying. I guess he's, yeah, I guess he's like working there as like a maintenance man. Yeah. Yeah, he's like Mr. Fix-It over there. It's, it's bizarre, but it's just at the same time, it's something we have never, ever seen in a bat book before, and I cannot wait to see where they're taking it. It's fresh, it's new, and it's well done. And the Batman book ties into so many other books that are in the DCU. I believe the uh, Superman and Batman tie in, uh, I don't know, at least like another nine books, right? Oh, yeah, and I love that. I love when, when you know, uh, comic book universes actually are successful in tying in their different story arcs together with yeah. the same characters. It's just a beautiful thing. So it's just now every book, most of the books in the DCU have this new dynamic. You have a nerfed Superman, you have a Jim Gordon Batman... And these show across the board in every book. It's shown in uh, Batman Detective comics. It's shown in Batman the Normal Title. Uh, it's affected uh, some other books. It's, Batgirl. Uh, uh, in Batgirl, it's, oh, it's yes, that, it did. that's an interesting thing. And uh, I, I meant to talk about Batgirl during our uh, our DC Vixens segment, but uh, just real quick, uh, it's very interesting what's going on with that because basically what we have here is. Jim Gordon having the directive from GCPD and the Powers Company to, uh, you know... Apprehend, apprehend all vigilantes. Exactly. Apprehend all vigilantes on site. Well, he encounters Batgirl, and it's like father has to arrest daughter, and uh, that leaves an interesting dynamic as well. Of course, you know, Batgirl, she, she can get away from pretty much anything, so, yeah. well, you know... There's a, a great dynamic there, because... Jim Gordon actually comes clean to Barbara and says that I want you to know I don't know what I'd be able to do if something happened to me and you didn't know. Meanwhile, Barbara Gordon has been Batgirl for years, it seems, and never bothered to tell her father that she was Batgirl. And, you know, I kind of find it hard to believe that he hasn't figured that out by now either, but... I don't know. In a way, it keeps the story running a lot smoother with him in in the not know. So, uh... You know, uh, it, it's definitely definitely an interesting dynamic there. So uh, lots going on in the Gotham universe to talk about. One last thing that I was hoping to touch upon uh, in regards to that is uh, a new Robin title that has come out uh, called We Are Robin. I was hoping you could tell us a little bit about that. You're right. Uh, this is something that I uh, recently purchased on a whim, and I will now continue to get it. Um, we are Robin. The whole premise is that Drake Thomas, uh, the young black kid who uh, Batman ended up originally encountering in the Zero Year arc, uh, Batman was saved by him, so he knows who he is, but then Batman ends up saving him, him in Endgame when the Joker gasses everybody. He ends up saving him at this time, and then that's when Batman's like, holy crap, the Joker knows exa- everything about me, like down to... His parents getting shot. And he tries to recreate that with Drake. And Batman gets him out of there. But we don't know what happens to Drake's uh, parents. 
So one of the big parts of the storyline of We Are Robin is Drake has been put into the system. He gets put in different foster homes. He's spending his spare time, like, like sneaking out and trying to look for his folks because he doesn't know where they are. And there are still a lot of people who are affected by the Joker gas in Endgame who are disoriented and living under, in the sewers in the underground of Gotham, which can be pretty shady and dangerous. So he goes through and he was going on under there and he ends up getting spotted down in the sewers and then he ends up getting saved by a bunch of other young um, young adults who uh, kind of have their own Robin shtick going on. They all act like they're Robin and they all kind of can hold their own a little bit. I don't know a lot about them now because it's only been one issue. Uh, but they all know that Drake Thomas had hung out with Batman, even though they don't know who Batman is. They got him pegged, and they know that that he was almost like next in line to become one of Batman's apprentices. And I mean, he's he's had so many. But um, now that Batman has gone missing, he's kind of doing his own thing. But now he's going to start having uh, his own adventures with these guys, and that's pretty much the basis for We Are Robin. I mean, there's also, uh, should we go ahead and just give the honorable mention to the other Bat books? We don't read there's, all of them. Yeah, so. I mean, I, we try to read all of them, but there are a few that we uh, we don't have too much in the ways of background info on. One is Gotham by Midnight, which I did get to read the preview of. It looks pretty solid. It was more or less about uh, Jim Corrigan, the Spectre, and his team that kind of goes out at night in Gotham and deals with the supernatural entities that are out there. Uh, the artwork looked good. Uh, the story looks solid, but once again, it's more for those horror nuts out there. Um, and then Gotham Academy is another one. Uh, now, I don't know a heck of a lot about that. Yeah, um, I haven't read it much, but as far as I can tell, it's about some of the more privileged kids in Gotham go to this private school called Gotham Academy, and then it just has to do with their interactions, which I guess it has a flavor of Gotham and Batman with high school drama. I imagine. Oh, sort of like the Dawson's Creek of Gotham, then. Yeah, okay, yeah. kind of. Okay, well, if you're into that sort of thing, uh, Gotham Academy, I have heard good things. Uh, so, um, just moving on to some of like the major marquee characters that we have not touched upon. Oh, well, um, got, got, got one more. One more. Oh, sorry. And then we also have Arkham Manor, which is pretty much a lot of the inmates from Arkham, I guess, locked in Bruce Wayne's old home. Right, I uh, just, you know, I was so involved with Batman Eternal, uh, I picked up every single issue and then also got the uh, got the hardcover, and, uh, you know, I had already bought so many books at that point that, you know, as soon as they tried to do the spin-off with Arkham Manor, uh, I personally just couldn't bring myself to pick it up because I just was buying too much, but yeah. um, I've heard good things about that as well. I mean, so. you, you do wish you could read everything. And then now that I'm doing the podcast, I, I, I my stack has actually gotten taller. Might as well, week yeah. Week. But uh, I mean, you can't read anything, everything. But what you should do is you should do, you know give stuff a shot, and if you like it, stick with it. And if not, just go with what your favorites are. It's okay. Not everyone has to be like a comic historian, which is more or less what I'm trying to be right now. Yeah, we're sort of uh, uh, amateur comic historians, I'd say. Uh, so. 
All right, we've discussed the Gotham universe within the DCU. Now, um, just a few uh, marquee characters that I just want to I want to touch upon their books. The uh, other big guns the of big, the DCU. The big guns before we get on to the DC Vixens and the DC Fringe. Um, just want to mention uh, what's going on with Green Lantern right now. I I just love what's going on with Green Lantern. Uh, basically, Hal Jordan. Uh, has gone rogue from the Green Lantern Corps. Uh, he recognizes that the Green Lantern Corps uh, has gotten a, ba- like a really bad name across the universe uh, due to the uh, the powers of the ring uh, messing the light spectrum up and draining that power. And uh, there's a lot of different organizations and entities throughout the universe that feel the Green Lantern Corps don't deserve to use their power because of that. Well, Hal Jordan... Sorry, Hal Jordan, uh, he decides in order to give the Green Lantern Corps a little more credibility, he steps down as leader of the Corps. And turns himself into a scapegoat, someone to blame for all the things that happened before that has the entire universe pissed off at the Green Lanterns. So, exactly. So, we sort of, we have this, like, new intergalactic renegade, but in reality, he's done one of the most heroic things. He's sort of, uh, you know, slandered himself in order to save the core. So we got a, a, a rogue Hal Jordan. He's flying around in this really cool looking spaceship now. He's got the long, you know, grizzled hair and like the, the, you know, the overcoat and everything. And he just looks so badass. He steals this gauntlet from the core before he leaves. Uh, that's more powerful than any of the Green Lantern rings. Uh, and he's just, you know, he's still, uh, floating about the universe, trying to do the right thing, trying to apprehend criminals uh, as he comes across them. But uh, he's obviously going to meet some serious challenges just being a wanted man. Yeah. Uh, he's going to not only be hunted down by you know the uh, undesirable entities throughout the universe that uh, he's tried to put away in the past, but he's also going to be hunted down by the actual Green Lantern Corps too, which makes things really cool and interesting. That's, he's got so. no backup anymore. He just uh, he decided to fall on his sword and and take the blame and tough it out and do what he could because he loves the core and that's who he is. And so far, it's just been such a great read. Uh, highly, highly recommend Green Lantern right now. Robert Vendetti and Billy Tan, they are taking him in such a cool direction. We we haven't seen a Hal like this. I mean, we've seen Hal possessed by Parallax. We've seen Hal, uh, you know, gone sort of rogue before doing his own thing. But he's always been part of the Green Lantern Corps. So this is just a totally new approach to the character. I think we're going to learn a lot more about Hal Jordan, the person, because he's been spending the past few years in space with the Corps. No one's really seen him. He, he, he didn't rejoin the Justice League until recently, uh, although that is where continuity really gets slipped up there, because he's in the JLA, uh and he looks much different there, obviously, than he does in his title yeah. book. Well, in the, in the actual Justice League book as well, uh, Superman hasn't gone through the, the depowering, and, and Bruce Wayne's still Batman. And right, right. Different and continuity on that one. So. so, I mean... Slightly. I don't know. I mean, just to keep from getting a headache, let's just say that that storyline is taking place before Batman Endgame... And before Lois Lane outed Superman, 
and before he kind of lost his powers. I mean, right. It, just, it makes my life a lot easier. Otherwise, it's just like, why did they do that? No. Yeah. Yeah, because yeah, it doesn't line up right now, but yeah, it doesn't bother me too much because it is, it's just a really neat story. So then, uh, we also have, uh, you talked about the Green Lantern, uh, universe, uh, here. We, we have another book that definitely needs to be mentioned and that is Lost Army, which is sort of the book that's been put in place in lieu of the Green Lantern Corps book. Uh, now, yeah, here I, I I don't know what the circumstances of the book are. Apparently, something has happened to the core that made it so that they got a they're somewhere else. Um, we don't know where. I imagine that'll be explained in later issues. Sometimes you just gotta like get the story going and let people hang in there and figure out what's going on. Yeah, right now, uh, all I was able to gather from the first issue basically was that John Stewart's leading. Uh, a lost group of uh, Green Lantern Corps members, and, uh, you know, their rings are almost fully depowered. They have no way of charging them, and uh, they're essentially so far away from uh, MoGo that it's going to be really difficult for them to get back to base. So uh, that's about all I really know about the book thus far. It's only one issue deep, but uh, it looks promising, looks good. The artwork looks phenomenal. I've enjoyed it. So, yeah. Um, let us move along to The Flash. Ah, The Flash. The Flash has probably been the most consistent book that has been worked on since the New 52 started. Every single arc has been just fantastic. I mean, and it's it's just great. I love it. I mean, the Flash has got this great dynamic. I think he's the one who wants to do the right thing more than any other DC superhero. His whole shtick is that he's just like, he tries to be there for everyone, and sometimes he's even late for stuff, even though he's the fastest man alive. And, I mean, geez, I, I, I can't think of a bad story arc that they've had. No, me neither. Uh, I sort of equate... Barry Allen is sort of like similar to how Peter Parker is for the Marvel U, where, you know, he's young and he's a little naive, but exactly, he's just got a heart of gold. He's got the most straight-laced moral compass of any of the Justice League members, for sure. And, you know, the story itself, in my opinion, The Flash is the one of the best overall superhero stories ever written. Uh, obviously, like, you know, I'm a little bit partial to the street-level vigilantes, but the, the cool thing about The Flash is, you know, he's a superhero and he's got that power of the speed force, but they stick him on the street a lot with some of these other... Uh, you know, a lot of his rogues have interesting powers, too, but... Uh, it's interesting to see him matched up against some of those characters, too. Uh, I know they just started a new arc in the latest uh, Flash 42 um, with Professor Zoom. They brought Professor Zoom back. Um, it's I love when Pro- Professor Zoom shows back up. Um, it's interesting. Now, it's important uh, for fans to realize the difference between Reverse Flash, uh, Professor Zoom, and Zoom, because they're... Professor Zoom and Reverse Flash are the same guy, Eobor Thawne. Uh, but Zoom, I understand, and I actually just learned this not too long ago, Zoom, which is he's going to be the big baddie in uh, Flash the TV show season two, uh, he's different. He's a different character. 
Um, they did not. Now, correct me if I'm wrong, but they did not use Zoom in the two fifty in the uh, new fifty two. They used Professor Zoom, uh, but Zoom was like a big uh, Wally West villain, apparently, when Wally West was the Flash after Barry Allen died in Crisis. Yeah, they've, they've had a lot of different variants on it. Um, as far as the New 52 is concerned, there was the reverse Flash, which was actually Daniel West, who was Iris West's brother. That's and, right, yeah. And uh, he ended up inheriting his Speed Force powers when Dr. Elias's Speed Force train, because he ended up using, sucking up Speed Force and batteries or whatever. Battery exploded. Right. All of a sudden, he gets the reverse flash powers. And what he does is he can suck off Speed Force energy from other people, and he can almost access it himself, which gives him the exact same power set as the Flash. If you're not too familiar with Flash's power set, He's extremely fast. He can run real fast. He can also make his molecules vibrate so quick that he can run through objects. He can also run so fast that he can go back in time. And during that particular arc, Daniel West was killing other people with Speed Force powers in order to build up his access to the Speed Force so that he could go back and kill his own father. Because the less people leeching off the Speed Force, the stronger the Speed Force will be... For the people that are still uh, connected to it. Correct. So, yeah. so in in the new 52's eyes, it was, there was a reverse flash, but in, in earlier iterations of the flash, the reverse flash and Professor Zoom were one and the same. But in this case, Professor Zoom is actually, he, I mean, he's still a reverse flash, but he's, he's a different character altogether, and his whole shtick is that he's the, uh, this, brilliant professor who recreates the accident that gives gives the Flash his powers. Now he's got the Flash's powers. He goes him back in time because he's got this hard-on for the Flash, and I guess he's trying to kill him. I mean, there's also some things in continuity, which I don't know if they're going to continue the storyline before, but in Flashpoint, that's when the reverse Flash had gone, well, Professor Zoom went back in time and had actually killed Barry Allen's mother, which somehow framed Barry Allen's father, and he ends up in jail. And because of this, this leads Barry Allen down a path to become a police forensics officer and ends up getting involved in an accident, which gives him his powers now. And Flashpoint was involved when Barry Allen actually goes back in time, and he prevents it, and then that caused this butterfly effect with everything else. Now, in the new 52 now... Well, I don't know. I mean, they're calling it DCU now, but it's more or less the same. It's the new 52 timeline. They haven't yeah. really deviated from that. They're just, they're just calling it something new because they want you to buy the books. They're calling it something new and they gave everyone, you know, a slightly different costume. You know, that's yeah, really the yeah. only difference. The Flash has got a pretty cool new costume. It's not much different, but, you know, there's a little more gold in there, which is yeah, cool. But, but, uh, anyway. But now with the dynamic with the Flash, uh, so he's got Professor Zoom to deal with. Uh, he doesn't know he has to deal with them yet. Um, I guess there's this, they're developing the story that Barry Allen's father somehow knew about Professor Zoom, and I guess he just took the fall and went to prison because he's trying to protect his son. And because he heard that Zoom's back, he's like, uh-oh. So he gets his, he's got made buddies in jail because he's in that, uh, that jail. And I love this, by the way, but continue. So he goes ahead and he gets his jail buddies and he breaks out of prison. And now he's a wanted man and he's on the loose. And uh, the next episode of, well, 
next book of Flash. It's going to involve the Flash trying to capture his own father. But he he doesn't like no one kind of understands what's going on yet, except for Professor Zoom. He's a bad guy, so right. I guess he knows. But the Flash has. I highly recommend reading anything from the New Fifty Two Flash line. Pretty much uh, anything from Flashpoint on. Yeah, yeah, I mean, it's it had in my mind it has been the most consistent book as far as quality storytelling has been concerned, just across the board. And like I said, if you're looking for you know, just a good all-around superhero story. Uh, I, I mean, maybe besides Spider-Man, uh, The Flash is probably the best superhero story there is. Uh, highly recommended. So, um, just a couple more characters to talk about before we get into, uh, talking about some of our vixens and fringe characters. Uh, what the heck's going on with Aquaman right now? Now, I don't read Aquaman. I just haven't been able to get bring myself to pick it up yet. I know Jeff Johns had a very good run. Uh, but besides that, I don't know a hell of a lot of what's going on right now. Uh, I know you do. Right. Ugh, like, words can't really express, express my disappointment within Aquaman. I kind of believe in him as a character. Uh, when Jeff Johns initially took on the character, he... He, he first he started it out. He gave him a good backstory. He really developed the character, and then Jeff Johns really breathed life into this character, which had pretty much become the Rodney Dangerfield of the DC universe. <laughs> no respect. Nobody respects Aquaman. So he go, and when he finishes run, ever since then, it's just. I mean, I kept trying to give him a chance, and then I'm just trying to. I, I have to come to grips with it, Andrew. Aquaman is an extremely hard character to write. That and and that just must be what it is. I mean, his his I guess his appeal is that it's more of a a story about a leader and his people. But he everyone kind of thinks of him as a superhero. But I mean, I can't even blame people for making fun of him now. Just he's just so hard <laughs> to write for. I mean, a lot of his stuff is delved in, delved in the story of ancient Atlantean history, how Aquaman has to live in two worlds since he's half human, his father was human, and his, and his mother was the queen of Atlantis, but the humans don't accept him and the Atlanteans don't really accept him even though he's like their king now. I mean, and he's like a real powerful guy, he's probably one of the strongest, uh, Strength-wise, in the Justice League, outside of maybe Superman, um, I mean, he's a leader. He makes hard choices, but I, it's just some of the arcs that we kind of had lately. Just Aquaman can't decide what he is, and it's made it extremely hard. I mean, they've had some of these arcs where he ends up like finding his mother, and now, now they got this new stuff going on right now where Atlantis is pissed off at him, and he's on the run. And he's trying to save this group of people, even though they're like, they're not good people and they're enemies of Atlantis, but some of how reason he's just morally trying to protect him and he's using these Atlantean artifacts. So he's kind of got more powers than he had, trying to make him more interesting. And it's just, I don't know, it's, it's, it's been rough. It's been real rough. <laughs> one of those books you gotta drag yourself through. I understand. Um, but if there's one thing I remember us talking about a long time back, uh, when you were getting me into DC, there was, uh, an awesome arc that Jeff Johns was writing about how, uh, 
about how Arthur Curry and Mara decide they're going to live on Earth. And they're going to be uh, live, you know, live like like humans, and and how they adjust to. Uh, uh, the culture of, of, of landlubbers, if you will. Yeah, uh, I mean, if I were going to recommend anything, just if you want to read any Aquaman at all, I'd just say pick up the Jeff Johns run. As I think it was like the first 15 or 16 books he'd done. They're out in trade paperback. They've been out for a while. And, Andrew, that's correct. Um, in the beginning, uh, Aquaman decided that he wasn't going to be the king of Atlantis, even though it was his birthright. He uh, sided that off to uh, his brother, Orm, also known as the Ocean Master. Who's just a great guy. Uh, you know, he's one of those guys that you just, you know, you love to just hang out and have a few beers with him and, and just talk about how great life is. Well, he's kind of a strange villain in the fact that <laughs> he, he's got, uh, yeah, I kind of feel for him because when he decides to make it, the, later on there's an arc, he decides that he's going to invade the, the, the ocean world, uh, I mean, invade land. And because I guess the Navy was practicing shooting depth charges or something and it ended up blowing up Atlantis and he's just like, nope, that's enough. And he rallied the troops and he ended up using some Atlantean weapon to bring the tide in, high tide in so much that it just floods the eastern seaboard. And he always had loyalty to his older brother Arthur and would have followed him if he was the king, but... Arthur decides not to do that, but Arthur's trying to play both sides, and eventually Arthur is forced to make a choice when Ocean Master's kind of just the guy who's trying to do the best for his people, but everyone else on the surface world sees him as a villain. I think you just sympathize with him because you share the same name. I, I think that might be some of it. That's part of it. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. But, uh, but yeah, no, in the beginning he was, uh, he tried to, they tried to, um, make, do it honest and live on earth and prevent bank robberies and stuff and eventually they just ended up switching over. But I mean, Aquaman can be really dry. I mean, I, I don't fault anyone for trying to, Aquaman, kind of stay away from that book. <laughs> Aquaman can be really dry. Boy, that's a, uh, oxymoron if I've heard one before. Uh, that well, was, I can't believe him. That was such a horrible pun. Either way, so, uh, you know, uh, we might not we bleh, we might not recommend Aquaman at this point in time, but stay tuned. Eventually, a writer will pick it up that will do it justice. So, uh, moving on, uh, just to keep things rolling, I'd like to turn our attention now, if I could, to some of our uh, DC vixens and some of their books. Uh, over the past year, I've really gotten into some of these uh, powerful uh, female characters that DC is. Uh, well, they've had them out for for years and years, but they've really started to beef these books up and and uh, just make them something really special. Uh, these books would include Batgirl, amazing, which has been uh, an absolute firecracker of a book uh, for the past year, probably the past two years now. Uh, Catwoman, which has been really great. Uh, she is a, uh, major crime boss now within the Gotham underworld for the Calabrese family, which, uh, as we know, her father, Rex Calabrese, uh, uh, was the longtime boss of that family, and it was her birthright to take over, uh, from there. And, uh, it's interesting to see how, uh, she plays around with, uh, 
the heads of Black Mask and the Penguins involved, and he's trying to work his angles on both sides. And then you have uh, the Falcone family uh, that's mixed in there, too. And uh, lots of cool things going on with that book. Yeah. Catwoman's always been a real interesting character in that she's not a bad guy, but she's kind of an anti-hero. She, she, she usually made her living before that stealing from other criminals. And eventually she just like, there's some things she just wouldn't stand for, like human trafficking and stuff like that. And then she'd end up like breaking faces and scratching eyeballs out, which is really interesting. But now we have the dynamic where she's actually the head of one of the, probably the most important crime boss within Gotham now. Like this enormous power shift happened within uh, Batman Eternal. And what had happened was, uh, she ended up taking over. Uh, it was, I guess the penguin just kinda got overthrown, lost his juice, and then, uh, she was there to pick up the pieces when everybody was losing their minds. Right. Uh, but it's interesting cause, you know, the penguin's like the ultimate, uh, swindler, so he's always still working his angles in there and he's trying to work both sides. Uh, obviously Catwoman and, uh, Roman Sionis, the black mask, uh, they're, they've been at each other's throats since the beginning. Um, so it's interesting to see her manipulate the Falcone family and play tricks, you know, like she did in the last issue with the, uh, you know, exchanging that drop off with the cash of the Falcones to black mask with the fake bills, uh, and getting those two at each other's throats and then gaining the support of the Falcone family. All the meanwhile, um, she is currently dating, uh, Eco, who is the daughter of, uh, a big Asian crime boss. I can't, the name escapes me at the moment. Um, so she, you know, they're, they're really, uh, exploring her bisexuality, uh, in this run as well. Uh, but she has, uh, Eco, um, you know, she gives her a Catwoman suit and has her run surveillance uh, on the other crime families for her, and you know, throughout the night uh, while she's also doing her own thing. Um, but they're lovers, and then they meet on rooftops, and you know, it's just it, there's a lot of juicy stuff in the book. It's just it's it's been a very entertaining read. So. No, no, it's, well, it's been really strong. It's been going strong since the New Fifty Two started. I think they're on issue forty one or forty two now. Uh, has 42 come out yet? I know I just read 41. I think 42 came out, yeah. Uh, I just, uh, it's in my stack. I haven't read it yet, but it's been, it's been great. Um, so then we got, uh, some of the other vixens to, to discuss. Uh, Harley Quinn is another one. Uh, she's had her own book, uh, for the past year and a half. Uh, and I've read it all. Uh, it's done by Amanda Connor and Jimmy Pamiotti. Um, I, I sort of look at the Harley Quinn book as sort of like, you know, uh, like a comical approach to the character. I mean, the character is very comical to begin with, you know, and if you love the Joker and you love Harley, uh, this book, you know, you don't want to take it too seriously because there's a lot of silliness that goes on, but, um, they do capture the essence of Harley really well. The artwork's phenomenal. It's very cartoony but it works like i said i sort of look at harley as as in, in her book uh the way i look at like you know an ant-man or a howard the duck for marvel where it's like you know it's just very light-hearted uh uh lots of good jokes um interesting stuff you know they had her uh you know 
uh, as part of a roller derby team for a while, which was pretty neat. Um, she's the landlord of this big apartment building uh, in, in uh, Coney Island. And there's all these different uh, characters that live in that building that interact with her, which is pretty cool. And then uh, uh, lately, uh, she was able to actually put together her own gang of Harley Quinns. She had like a, like a an audition, if you will, where you know different people from all around the city tried out to be one of the Harley Quinns in the Harley Quinn gang, and and uh, that that was really entertaining and funny, because she sort of had them all battle to the death, and there was like 12 of them that survived, and she was making them all dress up like her and go around the city uh, acting sort of as vigilantes, but she has like a very... Uh, loose idea of what being a vigilante really is. Like, she doesn't really get it. You know, she's just sort of, you know, out causing mayhem with this new gigantic gang of, of, of Harleys, uh, thinking that she's, she's doing, doing good, but in fact, it's just kind of just a big fiasco. So, it's been an interesting read. Um, now, the latest, uh, Vixen book that, that just came out a month ago, uh, that I just want to, I want to touch upon before we move on is uh, the new Black Canary book uh, done by Blendon, uh, Brendan Fletcher, uh, who also writes Batgirl, along with Cameron Stewart. Um, Black Canary uh, issue number one was really cool. Uh, basically, what they have her right now is she's broke as a joke, so she has joined up with this uh, sort of like punk... Punk rock band, it's a, it's a band, yeah, yeah, and uh, she's the lead singer. Yeah, it kind of spun out of the uh, the pages of Batgirl. Batgirl kind of went through this lighthearted phase where she moved to Burnside, which I guess is this other portion of Borough of Gotham, and she's going there and getting her degree and going through this internship, I guess, and helping computer programming. And uh, part of that was just, like, she had some faulty bat munitions that went off in Black Canary's home, thereby making her broke as a joke. And meanwhile, Black Canary finds her own way and ends up uh, getting into this band. And now she's got her own book, and she's on tour. Right, but at every show that, in the band, uh, ironically, is also called Black Canary, um... Every time Black Canary plays a show, uh, violence breaks out, and Dina, uh, Dina Lance, who is Black Canary, uh, can't seem to stop kicking the crap out of whoever it is that's running up on stage. Uh, I mean, it's justified because they encounter real danger at every one of their shows, but the reason for it is not quite clear. And it seems that Black Canary... Uh, Trouble sort of follows her everywhere she goes, and she's uh, at the point now where she's put she's putting the band in jeopardy. Uh, there are these creatures; these I, I'm not quite sure what to label them as, but they they, they can shape shift. They were yeah, they're, they're kind of like these shadow things. Yeah, something something weird like that. But um, basically, the, the story's left off right now, where they had one last the, the latest of their shows, where you know. Uh, Dina promises the band that, you know, the, n- no violence or anything is gonna break out. Well, sure enough, you know, these creatures show up at the show and, uh, the guitarist girl who, who doesn't really speak, she is seeing the creatures as she's playing the guitar and they seem to almost be coming after her. But, uh, you know, Black Canary, while protecting her bandmates, ends up causing, uh, just, 
mayhem and chaos and the whole venue gets destroyed and um she's sort of between a rock and a hard place because she's at heart a warrior woman you know she's a martial artist mm-hmm. um and a vigilante and she wants to do the right thing and protect you know protect people but uh in regards to the band, they can't seem to really catch a break because of all the venues just getting completely destroyed. So it'll be interesting to see where that goes to. No, no, so I mean, they got an excellent dynamic in that. It's a really good idea. I mean, it spins out of another great book. So that, that's looking real promising right now. Um, so from here, we're going into Andrew's wheelhouse. We are going into... The Fringe. The fringe. So we mentioned last week uh, that The Fringe is a segment where I like to discuss some of the characters that don't really play a large role in, like, the main uh, continuity within the DCU. They don't play a, a large role within some of the big main events, but... Uh, they have their own stuff going on, and uh, a lot of it's pretty cool. So, um... These would be characters uh, in the DCU, such as Green Arrow, Deathstroke, Constantine, Midnighter, uh, obviously the Suicide Squad, uh, Lobo, Red Hood, Arsenal, Martian Manhunter, etc., etc. Well, uh, now let's talk about Green Arrow for a little bit. Um, now, lately, uh, the book just changed writers again. Uh, the run of Green Arrow that I really enjoyed, and I know I'm not alone on this, is Jeff Lemire and Andrea Sorrentino's run that they had, where it, which started with the Kill Machine, right, and ended, I believe, with the Outsiders War. I yeah, think that, that's, that, that's where they left off. Yeah, um, that run was incredible. The artwork, whew, some of the best artwork I've seen in the graphic novel medium. I just love. Uh, the way Sorrentino draws, there's just something about it. It's and, just and Jeff Lemire's storytelling really saved it. At the beginning of the New Fifty Two, the Green Arrow was really it was a lame book. I mean, there's no ifs, ands, or buts about it. Uh, I mean, it was just not that good. What they had here was a character that was very interesting, um, and it was about to have a lot of juice as a title because. The, the show Arrow was about to be coming out on the CW, and and people ended up liking the show, and then eventually, so that what they had to do was they just they had to give it to the right people, and it had it was just it it did a one eighty. It went from being something that I just really begrudged picking up to something that I looked forward to reading at the top of my stack every week. Oh yeah, I was uh, like a little kid on Christmas uh, for a while. Every time I was, you know, got a new issue of Green Arrow. Uh, I'm a huge fan of uh, the series, the TV series, by the way, and we'll get we'll get into that during the uh, TV segment. But um, just real quick, uh, after Jeff Lemire and Andrea Sorrentino left the book after the Outsiders War, the book was then uh, uh, handed off to Andrew Kreisberg, who's actually a producer on the show. Um, and at that point, he did a, about a six-book run on it, and it mirrored the show almost exactly. Where you know they did a lot with Felicity, uh, they did a lot with John Diggle. Uh, you know, things like that. And then uh, I was really pumped about the book at that point because I was so into the show that I could almost, you know, read simultaneously and watch the show, and it all kind of made sense and was to- brought together pretty nicely. 
however, lately, uh, the book got handed off again. Uh, the name of the writer escapes me at the moment. I don't remember who's writing it right now, but uh, what I do remember is that it's just gotten a little on the dry side. I'm not going to lie. Well, well I, I picked up the last two issues. I mean, it was like the starting of his run, and they're trying new really turn Green Arrow into one of those crime books. And it's it, it really feels like uh, like Daredevil did to me. It kind of feels that way. Because Green Arrow's kind of, I mean, he's this CEO by day, but he's uh, like boots on the ground, like fighting for the little guy at night. And... Uh, I, mean, I think that the storyline that they got going on now has been pretty good. It starts off with like a lot of people who are African Americans are getting profiled by the, uh, and they don't know how they're, they're going, they're disappearing and found dead. And I guess it turns out that uh, Oliver made a terrible mistake and he signed off on the production of these drones that are supposed to help the law enforcement. That's right. I thought that was actually a really cool approach, come to think of it. Maybe I shouldn't be slamming this arc so bad so just yet. Maybe I should be giving it a, more of a chance. Yeah. Well, it's got, uh, I mean, it's got an actual real-life issue. I mean, the issue with drones is a real one. There are a lot of drones in the Middle East and everything, and people are actually terrified of them. So they're kind of showing that if they bring that story over here and give it the, the comic book twist, and people give it kind of a... a give it a serious look at a very serious situation being told in a kind of fantastical way, which if, that usually happens if you got a, some good storytelling. And the other thing, too, actually, if I could say one more positive thing about uh, the latest story arc is uh, how they brought back Henry Fife and his interactions with Oliver Queen uh They've actually been pretty pretty funny and pretty cool, you know. Uh, Oliver fires him from uh, Queen Industries uh, earlier on, way back, and uh, realizes that you know Fife is 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 the the only IT guy he knows at this point in time that that really has the brains to help him out. So you know he's going back to this guy and pleading for his help when it's like, hey man, like you know you, you kind of fired me like a few years ago. Like what are you doing here? But you know. He sympathizes with the cause. He teams up and, uh, you know, he's driving this, uh, uh, wonton truck for this Chinese food, uh, restaurant and, and they're using that as like their, uh, you know, their, their operational vehicle. And it's just, it's kind of cool in that respect where like, you know, right now Oliver doesn't have a lot of resources either. Um, he's got, you know, I think he's down to one suit. He's down to, uh, you know, a few of his trick arrows, but most of them are just, you know, regular arrows. And it's just him and Fife uh, and uh, the girl, the three of them trying to do their thing with limited resources. And, and they're trying to trying to keep it honest. It's just another one of those stories where uh, when they the thing that makes the hero special, whether it's the gadgets or the powers, I mean, what happens to that person when you take it away? Do they still do the right thing? Do they still try to go out into the night and do what they're supposed to do? I mean, those are very powerful stories because then it really builds the character. Like, well, well, I mean, you're all big and bad when you got these trick arrows when you're shooting people up in nets and getting people in foam and blinding people and everything else. But what happens when all you got are your skills? And, uh, I mean, it's uh, 
good storyline. It's been used a bunch, but it's it's a good one to go to. It's it's always a, a really cool thing when uh, you see a character that's you know been stripped of his resources or his powers, his or her powers. Like you look at Batman from Zero Year, same deal. It's literally just him in the cowl. He doesn't even have the cape for for Christ's sakes. Uh, Superman right now. Uh, with his loss of powers. I mean, when you see these deficits that these characters have to overcome, it makes for great storytelling because they have to overcome odds that they normally not have to deal with. Uh, so I guess, all right, I uh, take back my previous statement of Green Arrow being a pooper right now. Uh, you've made me realize that, yeah, it, it, it. I think it's a decent story right now, and I think it's going to get better too. So... Uh, We'll talk a little bit about Deathstroke. I haven't really been a fan of this run so far. Uh, well, I forget who's uh, who's working on it. He's a, a writer artist. Tony Daniel. Oh, and, why uh, did I not remember that? Yeah, he had a long run on Detective, and the art was fantastic. Oh, uh, his work on Detective Comics was phenomenal, both uh, writing and art. Uh, but right now with Deathstroke, I, I, you know, he's drawing Deathstroke really well. Uh, he looks badass, but the arc itself I'm just not a fan of just because I think it's just a little too outlandish for the character. You look at Deathstroke, uh, you know, he's the uh, ultimate bounty hunter assassin. Not really bounty hunter, but more hired hired assassin. Yeah. Uh, you know, but in this particular case, uh, he's, he's sort of been healed and he's been... Uh, he's younger now. He looks younger. His right eye has been healed by... Uh, the Spanish Inquisit- Inquisitor. Uh, that must be a new character. A new, created. yeah, a new character who uh, is sort of like not that Deathstroke really needs a mentor, but in a sense, a, a mentor who's like you know making Deathstroke a better Deathstroke. Although uh, they're on Themyscira in their training, and all of a sudden, this uh, Olympian god uh, Mephaestus, who's like the Olympian god of weaponry. Uh, creates this sword for Deathstroke, and it's this mystical Olympian sword that can be used to kill other gods. And he says, I'll give you this sword, basically, if you go kill a god for me. Uh, uh, what the, here comes the catch. Let me get, who's the god? Um, we don't, oh, I don't know as of yet what Olympian god it is, but I will tell you, it was hiding within an Olympian statue uh, on Themyscira. Uh, oddly enough, and when it comes out of the statue, it looks scary as hell. And uh, I don't know. There's just something about, uh, you know, Deathstroke is just a, you know, he, he's a normal everyday assassin. I mean, he's, he's, he's got, he's very highly skilled. Yeah. Uh, well, his whole stick before was he's, he was this kind of genetically engineered. He So he has strength and reflexes above regular men. He's just like, he just trains like crazy um he has like great skills he's so cocky i mean i actually dabbled in that book before they took it up again when it was uh just him and some of the best stories with deathstroke is you just give him these impossible targets and then he goes and then he just takes care of business whether it's a guy who regenerates and is immortal he'll find a way to kill him uh, you want him to freaking kill an entire clan of ninjas, like a hundred ninjas strong on a train? Yep, he'll do that. I mean, that's some of the best stuff when they you just give him this impossible task, and he's not really that powerful. I mean, he's got the nth metal armor, and he's got his swords. 
and that's about all he has working for him. But I guess now he's got this uh, Olympian sword, and now they got him trying to kill gods? Correct. Now, I love the fact that, like, he is, just like you just said, he's the go-to guy. You need you need someone dead, you call Deathstroke, you know? Deathstroke, make him dead for you. But uh, <laughs> in this particular case, I just don't see him killing a god. I feel like man versus god, man's going to lose nine times out of ten. Now, obviously, we're not going to see Deathstroke, you know, be defeated by this god is it's his title book he's gonna win but it's just i don't know i'll see how the next issue is but right now i'm just not happy i guess i'm just not happy with the matchup because it just isn't believable to me i like stories that are a little more believable yeah well it's an interesting idea it is it is killing a god i mean you got to be real careful with those kind of stories to so that they pan out because then some of the times they're on consistent sometimes these fringe characters seem like the biggest badass in the universe within the pages of their own book. But somehow they cross over into, like, a Batman or a Superman, and they get made look to look silly. Like, oh, hey, Deathstroke, your shoe's untied. Like, <laughs> you can't trick me with that. And then, and then his shoe's untied. And he's like, oh, no. Oh, I no. lost my powers because I'm in the Batman book right now. Yeah, exactly. You know, and, and, and that's something I actually I don't really care for is, like, you put – any of these characters, you put them in like a Batman book or a Superman book, and it's like they don't stand a chance. But then you put them up against these ridiculous adversaries in their own book, and it's like, you know, bringing the lamb to the slaughter, you know. So, now I will report on Deathstroke and uh, what happens in the next coming issues, because it will be interesting. But, like I said, not the biggest fan, because I think... Deathstroke was meant to be one of those grittier, down-to-earth, uh, shoot 'em up slice em up kind of stories. But we'll see. Um, just to breeze through some of these other uh, fringe characters, because we're not doing terribly well on time. Uh, Suicide Squad's been pretty stellar right now. Uh, they got a good lineup of characters in the squad in Task Force X right now. Yeah, great premise. Uh, obviously Harley and De- uh, Deadshot are, uh, you know, sort of the figurehead members. And then, uh, they also got Captain Boomerang in there. Uh, Black Mana, Black Reverse Mana, Flash. Reverse Flash. I believe they got the Parasite. Involved. Parasite! Parasite's yeah. a new, uh, new member. Yep. And, uh, I like it. Uh, I love the banter between the characters. The, you know, they're just, scummy people but they're forced to work together it's a great story uh, and i get a lot of the same characters right now in in uh, the book that are gonna be on screen for the suicide squad movie uh which is cool because i always like to read the literature and then go see the live action and compare the two so that's something cool uh right now just real quick what's going on with suicide squad uh amanda waller uh sends Deadshot, Boomerang, and Black Manta uh, over to the Middle East to join up with a sort of a splinter cell, if you will, from the League of Assassins. Sort of a, it's been splintered off there, and it's just called the League. Um, they're a little bit more, if if you can believe that there is any type of organization that is more uh, intense about what they're doing than the League of Assassins, well, the League just happens, the League, as they, they like to call themselves, they're just, they're more intense than the League of Assassins, so you're dealing with some really uh, 
serious killers there. Yeah, this, and uh, they're they're extremists, and they're 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 trying to go back to basics and do everything out in the open and cause a spectacle and scare the shit out of everybody, and then kill a bunch of people, and, and they won't stop at anything to achieve their goals. So Wall, what Waller does is she sends Boomerang, Deadshot, and Manta there to. Uh, uh, and they're not, they're not in uniform. They're just, you know, they're there to join up with the league and, uh, sort of get on the inside. And it's interesting to see how the different Suicide Squad members, uh, do with that. You got Black Manta, who's very much into it, so much so that he, uh, you can tell he almost feels like he belongs with the league and not with the Suicide Squad. Yeah, I mean, he's <laughs> been kind of a, a man in need of a purpose. Like, for a long time, his sole purpose in life was to kill Aquaman. And somewhere along the way, he just kind of lost that. And he just is just like, oh, I don't want to kill Aquaman anymore. But like, well, I have nothing to live for. Well, yeah, that's the thing. He realizes that once he kills Aquaman, then he's he's will have nothing to live for, exactly. So his life will be uh, void at that point. So he doesn't want to kill him. I think it kind of happened like, uh, like Aquaman disappeared during Forever Evil. And then... Uh, and that gave. Oh, a, right. And, and then he's just like, there's no point to this anymore. He was so bent out of shape because he thought Aquaman was dead, but he didn't get a chance to kill him that he, he didn't want to feel like that anymore because he felt so horrible because all he wants to do is kill Aquaman. He already yeah. killed Aquaman's baby and that wasn't good enough for him. Yeah, so then he goes ahead and he, he teams up with, uh, with Lex Luthor to go ahead and save the day during Forever Evil, but like once that that's completed, it's just forget it. Like I guess he decided to get a pardon from Amanda Waller, and then he's just like, my life's got no purpose, so he decides to go commit crimes and gets captured, and because he knows that he's going to end up getting put in the Suicide Squad, and then it'll give him some purpose in life. But now they got him undercover in this terrorist organization, and he's drinking the Kool Aid. Oh yeah, you know, you can tell he belongs there. But then there's guys like Boomerang, you know, who, who is already blowing his cover so much so that he's getting the shit kicked out of him by these guys because he's just not listening to them. He's trying to do his own thing. He's screwing around. He's like the kid in boot camp that just won't shut up and he keep, keeps getting dropped by the drill instructor to do more push-ups, you know? So, uh, and then Deadshot's kind of just stuck in the middle, you know, like, doesn't really want to be there, but yeah. he knows he wants, has to get it over with so he can go back and chill at Bell Rev and whatever. So, um, and then they got the other three, they got Harley, Parasite, and, uh... They're on standby, they're the, uh, they're there to go ahead and help the assist when they, when they get out of there. Because I guess, uh, they're there to go ahead and destroy, they, I guess the League has this, uh cache of weapons that they've picked up from other supervillains who ended up just leaving it behind after they get defeated or something, and the heroes weren't smart enough to lock that shit up. They go in, they swoop in, they got stuff like Joker gas and other things. All kinds of goodies, yeah. Yeah, just, I mean, and, uh, cold guns, all sorts of evil weaponry from mad geniuses. And 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 the thing I, the aspect I really like about this story arc is that um, they really show the degree of uh, attention deficit disorder that some of these characters have, especially the ones that are forced to uh, stay back as uh, uh, backup, if you will. Like Harley is just standing around in the desert, and she's so bored that she's you know shooting rocket launchers at Parasite just to see like what he'll do. Yeah, yeah, and Parasite like loves it because the food they gave him is like it tastes like garbage. 
He'd much <laughs> rather be fed by getting blown up by rocket launchers. And he just keeps absorbing the energy from these rocket launchers that get blown up. Meanwhile, Reverse Flash is all like, I'm really trying to reform and be a good person. And they're just like, mm, no, I'm going to shoot rockets instead. Reverse Flash, you know, and, and he adds a lot of... Uh, uh, comedy to the mix too because he is definitely the whipping boy right now of the Suicide Squad and the oddly enough you know Reverse Flash is is probably more powerful than all of them I I would say yeah but, but he's he's playing the straight man yeah yeah it it's made it interesting though it's made it really funny uh it, it's definitely Suicide Squad has never disappointed me uh, as a read it's something that you know I'll probably continue to read for a long time so always entertains absolutely so um. Moving on, then we have uh, Constantine just got rebooted. They've put out issues one and two. Uh, obviously, you know, we'll talk a little bit more about the TV show, how much I liked it, and how bummed I am that it got canceled and not picked up by any other uh, networks. That kind of sucks. And I really think it had a lot to do with uh, the time slot they gave Constantine. But No, oh, yeah, I mean, it's just doomed to fail if you're on a Friday night. Friday night at 10 p.m., who's going to be watching, you know, Constantine, you know, every, people go out and whatnot. No. I mean, I was watching it, but... <laughs> yeah, I mean, well, in today's day and age, like, a lot of people don't don't sit down to watch stuff. They're, they're basing their ratings on whether or not people are sitting down on a Friday night. And Friday night ratings aren't going to be all that great to begin with. Yeah, they never are, so... So they never really gave it a chance. I mean, a lot of great shows have come and gone because... They didn't know what they had. And this was definitely a case of that because, you know, the the, the show itself, it just followed the source material so well. The, those early uh, uh, volumes of Constantine written by Jamie Delano, uh, some of those epic story arcs were conveyed so well on screen. And, and we'll, we'll touch upon that more uh, in just a few minutes. But uh, in regards to the book... Uh, they're calling it Constantine the Hellblazer. Yeah. Um, For those uh, who don't know, Constantine originally appeared in the pages of Hellblazer, uh, part of the Vertigo line. It was uh, the more mature label owned by DC. Um, a couple years ago, uh, during the beginning of the New 52, they brought John over with uh, Justice League Dark. And he was doing so well that they gave him his own title. And then now they've kind of, I don't want to say rebooted it again. I mean, they started it from a number one, so I don't know what that. I wasn't reading it a lot normally then, but then, you know, there was a period of time in my life where I didn't have a lot of cash and didn't, couldn't really afford to read the book. But I'm reading this one, and uh, John Constantine is... Uh, a very charismatic Englishman who will swindle you and dabbles in some dark mystic energies. And you don't want to be his friend because terrible things happen to all his friends. Yeah, uh, you don't want to be too close to John Constantine because, you know, he's always... Whether he's doing exorcisms or, or different, uh, encampments for raising, uh, demons from hell or whatever it is, if you get caught up in the middle of that, chances are you will not survive. And actually this segues really great into the, uh, current story arc because what he's dealing with right now is he's got all these ghosts following him of the different friends and colleagues from the past that have died because of 
John Constantine's lifestyle. And there is this uh, evil entity that is coming to kill off all these ghosts. Now, the big question in the arc is how do you kill a ghost? A ghost is already dead. Well, John Constantine himself has does not have an answer for this, but, you know, he tries a few things uh, in regards to the dark arts, and it doesn't work, and uh, as a result, uh, one of his best friends from the early, early Hellblazer arcs, Gary Lester, the junkie, uh, is actually one of my favorite Constantine characters. Uh, he's killed by this evil entity. I don't know if it's a demon or what. They haven't really gone into that yet. I think they'll get more into it next issue, but... Uh, He's basically got to save the rest of these uh, lost spirits that just follow him around all the time. Is they these spirits never f- let him forget uh, what you know the consequences are of, of like I said of Constantine's lifestyle and uh, the way he dabbles in those dark arts. So it's interesting because these people are obviously a thorn in his well they're not people they're they're ghosts but these ghosts are a constant thorn in his side You're trying uh, to make sure he can't enjoy anything exactly just a guilt trip forever that's uh, haunting <laughs> but at the same time he has to save them uh from whatever this uh evil entity might be so uh it'll be interesting to see what uh issue number 3 brings uh so i just want to change gears here uh and talk about one more character, and then uh, I actually was hoping you could illuminate us uh, in regards to Midnighter, uh, Martian Manhunter, and Red Hood and Arsenal. But uh, let me discuss Lobo real quick. Uh, Lobo's been a good run so far. They've had eight issues out now. And uh, Cullen Bunn, who actually had a long run on Wolverine before his demise, uh, is writing Lobo. And I like that because Lobo has a very similar personality to Wolverine. He's a little bit more uh, unethical than Wolverine is, but he's got that same like uh, animalistic killer instinct that that Wolverine has. So having that same writer work on on this book now, yeah. uh, could, it makes explain, a lot of sense. Could you explain the difference? I, the, the Lobo I remember is kind of different from what the Lobo we have now. There was the main man Lobo, which we all know is just this a gigantic, hulking, biker alien that kind of just killed his whole race and then and they actually had him depicted in some early DC stuff uh, he had some throwdown with uh, Deathstroke that I remember reading about but then I guess he was part of Stormwatch for a little bit um, and then there's the Lobo that we have now right well uh, what Cullen Bunn is essentially doing with Lobo right now is he's bringing him back to his roots we got a younger Lobo. He's not really a main man uh, Lobo. It's not really uh, such a comical book like it's been in the past where it's just, you know, kind of just this, this exactly this big lurking biker intergalactic bounty hunter douchebag that just, you know, takes a job and whether it's a smuggling run or he's hired to execute somebody it's all about the money for him well it's still all about the money for him but like i said uh they're doing his origin story which i mean correct me if i'm wrong but i don't believe it's really been touched upon in this type of uh intricacy so they show him destroying the planet of zarnia his home world but they've added the twist where 
Lobo was possessed by some type of uh, intergalactic uh, paranormal entity of some sort. And the whole, like, bigger picture within the arc that's going on right now is him trying to figure out what uh, influenced him to uh, destroy and murder everyone in Zarnia because he didn't, you know, Lobo himself didn't, didn't, that's not what he wanted to do. Uh, so it's kind of taking the character and making him instead of more of an anti-hero villain, a little bit more of a hero, still much more of an anti-hero. But uh, right now he uh, has encountered this very power- powerful uh, empress uh, and joined forces with her. Uh, I forget the name of the organization that she runs. Uh, it escapes me at the moment, but he becomes her main hitman. Uh, and in exchange, she is supposed to help him find out what the hell happened with Zarnia. It's not like Lady Sticks, is it? No, it's Empress So and So. I, I just, I wish I jotted down a few notes about the arc. Yeah, but. The, the, the DCU's got the uh, couple different sections as far as uh, the galaxy is concerned. Everyone knows about the Green Lantern Corps, but then the Green Lantern Corps actually never actually policed the entire universe. There was this whole section and area that was run by Lady Sticks. And she had her own thing going on. And then there was the area conquered by the Reach. Um, not familiar with the Reach. The Reach are the people who developed the scarab technology that the Blue Beetle had. Uh, Blue Beetle, in the beginning of the New 52, had his own book, had a great power set. They just couldn't capture the imagination of any of the readers. Um, and, I mean, even though I read it, they, they there was a lot of things that they could have done with the character. And they just kind of whiffed strike three on that one and they moved on to something else so there's that part of the dcu and then uh then you got the area where the thanagarians are and then i guess there's a part where where you're at right now i imagine well lobo i like to think of him as a character he's he's in and out of all of those aspects of the universe he's just he's a rogue traveler of of the galaxy and uh you know, he'll take a job, like I said, no matter, I mean, this, in this particular case, like I said, with their, them really focusing on his origin, uh, he's taking a job because he need, to find a means to an end, because he needs help finding, uh, like I said, whatever possessed him, uh, on Zarnia. But typically, yeah, Lobo is, uh, a character who, you know, hire him for smuggling or, or, you know, to assassinate someone, and you know, if if the uh, if the money's right, he's uh, he's on board, and he travels throughout the whole universe, and he's had encounters with everyone from Green Lantern Corps to Supergirl uh, to Stormwatch. I mean, he's been all over the place. So right now, if you'd like to, if you're somebody who'd like to know, you know, more about the background of this really cool rad. Uh, intergalactic, uh, bounty hunter, smuggler, assassin type character. Uh, it's really cool to fi- finally get some background, like a lot more background information than there has been before on the character. So, uh, well, I recommend picking up that fringe character's title because of that. Uh, so just a few more fringe characters I was hoping you could touch upon, Holden, before we move on to the DC top five picks. 
and the DC Cinematic Universe. I was hoping you could tell us a little bit, because these are three books I haven't gotten to yet, uh, Midnighter, Red Hood and Arsenal, and Martian Manhunter, if right. you could. <clears throat> well, as long as we're on Intergalactic, I'll go ahead and start with Omega Man. Oh, uh, and Omega Man, sorry. I forgot that's one, too. Oh, yeah, my bad. No. Anyways, Omega Man is... A title that it just kind of just came out. I didn't have any real clue about what it was. It seems like their own their own thing. I don't remember anything really having to do with them before. And uh, the whole premise to this book is they're building up this slow story uh, storytelling. So the first book um, it kind of shows who the Omega Men are, but they, it doesn't give any backstory. And they're they kill a bunch of people, and then there's some. They talk about some going-ons that the Omega Men have killed Kyle Rayner, one of the Green Lanterns, one of the more well-known Green Lanterns. Or at, so, at, he was the White Lantern for a long period of time, too. I know I'm not to go on a tangent. He but, was. Uh, he was. So it turns out that the Omega Men didn't kill him, but they have him captured, and they put a bomb in his throat. And if he tries to escape, it'll uh, they'll blow it up on him. So what they do is they go ahead and... Uh, they're, they're going through all this stuff. They're on this planet, and they got this beef with the government. And the way they arrange things, they go, they, uh, they manage to kill a bunch of government guys, steal the ship, and then take off. And meanwhile, Kyle's got no ring, and he's trying to come to terms with it. And it's kind of developed, kind of slow. They didn't have me on for the first one, and I kind of bought the second book on a whim. But it's starting to actually look like something I could get into because they've actually advanced the story more. Um, I'm looking forward to uh, more stuff from Omega Man to see if they can clear up the a lot of these questions that I have, like where are they in space, who are they really, what's the deal with the organization, what are they truly trying to accomplish, stuff like that. Um, so from there, I'll go on to move on to... Uh, a pretty interesting character from the Midnighter book. Uh, Midnighter was originally created a character uh, under the Wildstorm line, and he was part of Stormwatch and the Authority. And he's one of the first gay male leads as far as heroes are concerned. And Midnighter's whole thing is that he's kind of got this computer brain where he can think of all these different... Uh, scenarios and knows which one to pick depending on what people do. So he's already got you figured out before you even throw the first punch. He's probably already like seven moves ahead of you. He already knows that he's going to win the fight. Sort of like Batman but with some help from some uh, some tech uh, inside his brain, yeah, so to speak. Yeah, I guess uh, he was kidnapped by aliens when he was younger and they redid his thing. Oh, that's uh, cool. Yeah, so um, That's pretty neat. The book so far has been real interesting. Uh, he's just had, having to like go on all these dates with different guys, and he's just like just teleporting all over the place because he's got teleporter technology and just kicking the shit out of people. And it's been a really interesting read. Um, it's kind of a fresh take. There aren't too many gay superheroes out there, and it's actually been written really well. They're not really leaning on the fact that he's a homosexual so much as that. Yeah, that's part of what he does, but that's not the main thing, and that's not the main thing driving the story. So I, I highly recommend picking that one up. Um, moving right along. Yeah, like here. I said, um, 
just one thing about that, and and I'm I'm actually going to be picking up Midnighter now just because I've heard so many good things. But you know, like I mentioned in the last cast, uh, you know, sexual preference uh, in regards to a character. Uh, doesn't really matter to me just so long as the story arc doesn't dwell solely on that sexual preference and there's an actual plot line going on besides that uh you know gay straight by trans whatever it is uh not a big deal, but there's got to be something else going on besides that. So well, yeah, the main important thing has to be storytelling. I mean, a lot of readers aren't aren't dumb. I mean, you pick up something, you realize whether or not something has substance or not, or whether or not it's trying to live on a gimmick. Um, Midnighter is not, and that is good. Right. Oh, it uh, definitely looks like an entertaining read. I will be uh, joining the Midnighter uh, Midnighter Brigade, if you will. The the Midnighter Party. Midnighter Block Party. And then uh, I'm just going to finish off the fringe here. We have Red Hood and Arsenal. Uh, it kind of continues on from uh, Red Hood and the Outlaws. Great characters in that, by the way. Red Hood and Arsenal are both very gritty, badass characters. Yeah, um, a couple couple washed out uh, sidekicks. Red Hood, namely uh, Jason Todd, was the second Robin who ends up uh, killed and then reincarnated and trained to be an assassin. Now doing his own thing and helping people in his own way with bullets. And we got uh, Arsenal. Uh, Green Arrow's washed up old partner who became an alcoholic and then rehabbed himself. He's a genius with tech. And uh, between the two of them, they go on these crazy adventures and they're trying to get hired and do wet work for the uh, from the U.S. government. And, uh, I mean, I, I dabbled in the book before when it was Red Hood, The Outlaws, and it's early run. I picked up some digital copies back when that's something that I did. And uh, and it's been solid storytelling, although nice, good, short stories. They only really last two to three arcs. Um, they're short and sweet, get to the point, very entertaining stuff, a lot of action, a uh, lot to like about this book. Very cool. Yeah, I like both those characters so much. And uh, once again, uh, a book that I personally haven't had a chance to pick up yet, but... Uh, I, I was a fan on and off with uh, Red Hood and the Outlaws and uh, Red Hood and Arsenal. Uh, it looks just as good. Now, not sure. I don't have a good reason for not reading it yet. But anyways, and then uh, why don't you tell us a little bit about Martian Manhunter now? Because uh, Martian Manhunter is a very influential character within the DCU. We uh, now he's often uh, a member of the JLA. Uh, he was on Stormwatch for a while. But right now, uh, he's pretty much a fringe character, so he's mixed in with our fringe. So right. why don't you illuminate us a little bit, because I haven't had a chance to read that one yet either. Uh, if you're not familiar with the Martian Manhunter, uh, his story goes as he is one of the last Martians, if not the last Martian, I do believe. Um, he's probably got the most powerful power set among DC heroes. He has, he's a psychic. He can shapeshift. He can phase through objects. He's super strong. Um, I mean, he's, he's just the total package. Um, but uh, he's invulnerable to fire. Um, he's been featured off and on on several books within the New 52. Uh, he was with Stormwatch for a while. Then from there, he moved to the Justice League of America. 
And then from there he kind of took a break, and then they finally decided to go ahead and give him his own book. And right now, uh, in the book itself, I guess it turns out that he's not the only Martian, and he was actually designed to take over Earth, and Earth's his new home, so he's trying to, like, fight his programming. And he's get, he's interacting with the other uh, other Justice League members, trying to figure out, like, what it is that he needs to do, and just figure his stuff out, and... Uh, I mean, that's just book number one. It has an awful lot going on. It looks promising. I'm uh, probably going to continue to pick it up and see where it goes. And I am going to pick it up at the bookstore this week. <laughs> no, because seriously, that and Midnighter and uh, Red Hood and Arsenal, all three of those, There's no, I don't have an excuse for not reading those. Uh, those got to be part of my stack. Well, I mean, it's, I mean, there are a lot of books out there. And DC has so many titles out right now. Yeah, I mean, there's, I mean, there's a lot that we haven't even mentioned. Uh, they got like uh, Doomed, uh, Doctor Fate. Oh, uh, I read Doctor Fate. You did? How was that? It was good. I liked it. You know, uh, I um, didn't know much about Doctor Fate until uh, he popped up in Constantine and uh, Justice League Dark and all that good stuff. He was a big part of Infinity War. Or sorry, not in fi- that's Marvel. Uh, Trinity War. But, oh, uh, right, right, right. Uh, belay my last on that Trinity War. But yeah, basically, um, in issue number one of Doctor Fate, uh, there is this uh, sort of teenage. He's not teenage. He's 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 in medical school. So you know, early twenties. This this uh, young guy um, and his cat. Is actually um, well, like an Egyptian god. It, or the Egyptian Egyptian god uh, Bastet, uh, which is the actual uh, the name of a real Egyptian god that looked like a cat, oddly enough. Hmm. Um, and Anubis, who's another Egyptian god, uh, who's a dog. And there's this dog running around. Uh, which is really Anubis that's creating this massive flood in New York. Uh, and they're at the Brooklyn Museum and, uh, this boy's cat, uh, is trying to get him to take the Dr. Fate helmet, you know, take that, that sacred helmet and become Dr. Fate because it is his fate to, uh, go against Anubis and save, uh, New York from this great flood. Uh, so, you know, from there on, it's pretty much just the the boy putting on the helmet and uh, getting accustomed to everything uh, in regards to that. But uh, it it looks like a really promising uh, run that they're going to have on a character that hasn't really uh, hasn't been prominent in quite some time. Uh, Paul Levitz, who's like you know a veteran of DC, is writing it. Uh, so obviously, they got somebody who really knows what they're doing and really knows the character well. I mean. Uh, I believe Paul Levitz had a lot to do with Crisis on Infinite Earths. Uh, am I right about that? I know, I know Paul Levitz. I know he at least edited it. Uh, Crisis on Infinite Earths. Um, oh man, I mean, I usually have a hard time remembering names, even when it's like major writers. Yeah, I'm, I'm almost positive Paul Levitz. I mean, Paul Levitz was, uh, He's got some kind of chair position at DC right now. It just escapes me at the moment. He's one of the big, big, big wigs at DC, though. So he's writing that book. And uh, the art's great, and the writing's great. I got nothing bad to say about it. So I guess as one last 
fringe character. Uh, Doctor Fate, definitely a book worth picking up. Yeah, I so. mean, DC has a lot of great titles to offer. Uh, something for everybody. There uh, really is. Yeah, I mean... It's like, you know, you want a good superhero story, you pick up The Flash or you pick up Superman. You want a great space opera, you pick up Green Lantern. Uh, you want a good crime story or even a horror story, you pick up Batman. Uh, Justice League gives you a little taste of everything. Uh, and then all those fringe characters and everything they got to offer. You know, horror, uh, Constantine's obviously a good horror tale. Uh, yeah, you're dealing uh, with the... Uh the dark unknown and the mystical and the macabre and things like that. Yeah. That's, you just so you I, grab yourself Constantine. Exactly. And I think um, besides the marquee characters uh, of like sort of like the Justice League members, DC hasn't done nearly as good of a job as Marvel has marketing some of their other characters. Is it sort of, in a lot of cases, can seem like the Batman, Superman show, but... They really offer so much, so many different types of stories and different genres within, you know, with these different array of characters in DC that, you know, once you get into the DCU, uh, it's almost overwhelming how much there actually is to offer. So it's really cool. 